Halito, and welcome to Native Chalk Talk, a podcast by Natives for all. Here, we're keeping our Native ancestors' stories and history alive, while also sharing with you our Native cultures, traditions, and more. I'm Rachel Youngman, a Choctaw originally from Anadarko, Oklahoma. I hope you'll enjoy this journey with me as we learn from our Native American guests. And stay tuned for the end of each episode, where we'll talk about some great ways to support Native causes and or Native-owned businesses. Let's get started. But first, a word from our sponsor. Potential is everywhere in the Choctaw people. It's in our schools and students. It's in our small businesses and entrepreneurs. Potential is in our lifestyle and health. It's in our culture and heritage. Passion and commitment is in our blood. Ingenuity and economy are a tradition. And the Chutla Foundation was founded for this potential. To cultivate minds and hearts, to stimulate ideas and passions, to extend lives and improve health through education, and to preserve and promote the power of our past. The Chatha Foundation, meeting the potential of the Choctaw people. Kindred Spirits. It's the name of a sculpture commemorating love in a time of famine. Nine stainless steel, 20 feet tall feathers seem to dance upright in a circle while standing still. The lovely yet strong formation almost takes the shape of a bowl. Perhaps one could assume it's an empty bowl being filled during the Great Irish Famine of the mid-1800s. While facing north there in Middleton, County Cork in Ireland, one can see the area of water that is the nearby estuary through the steel feathers. While facing south, the view becomes that of the proud Irish lands. Throughout the day, the feathers take on new life with the various positions of the sun and the rolling clouds, a never-ending story that life continues to roll along, while yet the memories still remain. In 2013, the town council voted to create a competition for a sculpture that would commemorate a gift from the Choctaw Indians to the Irish during their famine. And what a beautiful tribute it is. Artist Alex Pentec summed up his vision of the sculpture stating, I wanted to try and create a fusion, one that would somehow visually symbolize the history of the famine and the Choctaw donation, the humanity and tenderness in such a terrible time amidst the horror of what was going on in Ireland, but also what had happened 13 years previous during the Trail of Tears. Ireland's president, Michael D. Higgins, wrote the following in the foreword of the book Famine Pots, stating, This contemporary moment calls on us to make a fresh commitment to the university of human rights and to the common humanity of all. Ireland has a lengthy history of humanitarian engagement strongly influenced by our experiences of famine and of emigration. Our humanitarian action is therefore shaped in many ways by a tragic history, but it is rooted in values that remain relevant in a contemporary world. Solidarity, community, democracy, justice, freedom, and respect for human rights and equality. They are the values which must continue to guide us as we navigate our future direction as citizens of an interconnected world. 
Today, my guest, Seth Fairchild of the Chata Foundation, is here to help us observe the 175-year anniversary of the gift to the Irish from our Choctaw people. Seth, welcome back to Native Choctaw. Well, thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. I loved our first conversation that we had and you know, really hope that that encouraged people to record their stories. And I'm excited to dive in a little bit deeper to this story that is so special to our people and to the people of Ireland. And I love that you and I share that common feeling of this gives us the goosebumps. It's that story that really has some hard things to talk about, but really has that golden ending that makes us realize humanity really is good. So it's great to visit with you again. Uh, last time, as you mentioned, we were talking in Native Talk Talk season one. That was when we were just a baby. Uh, episode 13, where we talked about preserving our Native stories and history and to learn more about the Chata Foundation. So before we begin, why don't you share about the Chata Foundation again for folks who may not know about the great work you do here? Yeah, well, I think, you know, really what we focused on was one of my favorite things that we do, which is record our elders and community members, very similar to what you do. And I always say, you know, there are never enough people out there recording stories because there are so many amazing stories uh, to collect. Uh, we also were a 501c3 that um, probably our main programming is in area of education. Uh, we've given out a few million in scholarships at this wow. point, and that we work with over 4,000 donors a year. We've been doing this for a little over a decade and continue to impact education. And that's really kind of where we started developing a relationship with the people of Ireland was because uh, of the Choctaw Ireland Scholarship. And we've, uh, we're in our, I believe, our fourth year of that scholarship. And we just, over the past couple of weeks, sent two of the this year's recipients over to Ireland. Uh, yeah, so we're in September of 2022. We, so you just sent some new, we are, new recipients uh, over. Skyly Glass and Ariana Joins, which I think Ariana has gotten married since since she first got the uh, scholarship, but they're both over there. We stay in contact with them and they are doing a great job being ambassadors for the Choctaw Nation. That's incredible. And I, I definitely want to hear more about that later. And in fact, my daughter, as we were talking earlier, is friends with one such recipient of that scholarship. And when I realized that they were the same person that I'm going <laughs> to be talking to later today, yeah. I thought that was really fun. So first, let's talk about a very intriguing book you sent to me called Famine Pots, the Choctaw Irish Gift Exchange, 1847 to Present. It's a book of 15 essays written by both Choctaws and Irish, and some who are both, about the beauty of the bond between the Irish and the Choctaw. So we're going to use this book quite a bit to help us tell the story of the Irish famine and about a gift the Choctaw sent to them. I do highly recommend y'all go out and get that book. By the way, when I reference famine pots as we go along here, I'll be calling it the book. So Seth, who who actually wrote the essays in this book? Yeah, pretty interesting. And, you know, it's, it's something that um, really has been very popular with our tribe and tribal members. Uh, we have many Choctaws, uh, Leanne Howe, Tim Tingle, Jackie Thompson-Rand, Philip Carroll Morgan, and more. And then we also had Irish authors, uh, Dr. Christine Kent Kinley, uh, Sean Henry, Iman Wall, and, and many more. But it was a great collaborative effort between uh, the Choctaw people and the people of Ireland. I love that. What a brilliant idea of bringing all those folks together to do this. Ah, again, goosebumps moments. <laughs> I've known about this story for years, and although I always thought it was it was touching, 
delving now into the details and, and really thinking about how a group of people who who had survived so much wanted to help others really shed a deeper light on things. So, so let's delve into the great Irish famine that occurred during the mid-1800s. But first, let's talk potatoes. The word for potato in Gaelic is prata, and apologies if I uh, pronounced that wrong, but now you know a new Gaelic word, prata. There are multiple stories as to how the potato was introduced to Ireland, but we do know that in 1532, the Spanish conquistador Francisco Pizarro saw the potato in the Andes Mountains of South America in its original environment, the potatoes being a staple for the Incas. Some say Sir Walter Raleigh and others say Sir Francis Drake and John Hawkins introduced potatoes in 1589 to Ireland. The potato grew well in the damp soil of Ireland and was soon a standard crop of the 18th century. However, this one crop became a dominant food source, 90% of the Irish's food source, in fact, for 3 million people, and that dependency became dangerous. So why was there such reliance on the potato as a food source? Yeah, really pretty interesting. So as I'm sure you know, the, the British gained control of Ireland fully in uh, 1541, and the nobility owned Irish land, and they basically wanted a cash crop produced on the land. So potatoes were the only food that they were able to eat of what they grew. Potatoes are cheap to grow, and they don't need much care. So obviously they became dependent on those, and really for the Irish people, they couldn't afford other foods at that time. Wow. And we're going to learn a lot more, too, about how yet they were providing their, what would have been their own food sources they were providing to England. So, and by the way, that history of the potato, when we started looking into that, it was kind of like, I can't imagine a world without potatoes. I just always thought, oh, potatoes have always been there. Yeah. <laughs> there they were in the Andes Mountains. So you mentioned cash crop, which is an agricultural crop that's grown to sell for profit by another party. So the British forced the Irish to grow crops, and those crops were exported out of Ireland. So this dependence on the potato was really the perfect storm for the famine that was to come. So what caused the famine itself? Yeah, really, I mean, pretty pretty simple. It was a disease that we probably hear called blot, and it, it basically just killed the roots of the potato plants and the leaves. Oh, my gosh. And then according to the book, ongoing heavy rainfall and therefore fungus brought about by dampness spread throughout Ireland via insects, irrigation, wooden hose, and more brought about that potato blight from 1845 through 1851. I, I didn't realize the famine was that long. That's terrible. So according to the article by History.com titled, After 168 Years, Potato Famine Mystery Solved by Barbara Moranzani, the plant pathogen, the strain HERB1, originated most likely in the Toluca Valley of Mexico and spread into Europe in the 1840s. And then that strain is now believed to be extinct, thankfully. So therefore, the rotting of the only crops of uh, three-fourths of Ireland initiated a severe famine, the death toll being approximately 200,000 to 300,000 Irish people. Had you heard that stat, how many people? Yeah, it's, it's unbelievable. It's crazy. So a massive famine is taking place, and yet the Irish are still being forced to export their own crops to England, correct? Yeah, that, that was it. And you can just imagine the situation that the families would have been in and, and really led to the whole country being in that situation. And 
uh, Christine uh, Kinley in History uh, Ireland uh, stated that during the famine, nearly 4,000 vessels of food left Ireland on their way to England in just one year. And this was food that was desperately needed by the people of Ireland. Good God. And they must have been, this is something I don't know, and I'm maybe, you know, we'll brainstorm this together, but is that, did they cheat a little here and there, or did they put all the food in there and sent it on because maybe there were English soldiers, or I don't know, you know, maybe someone was watching over them the whole time? Yeah, it's a good question, you know, and, and really it was a situation of true survival. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, it, I, I don't know if that would have happened, but I, I think any of us, given in a situation where we're trying to feed our kids and our family, we would have done anything that we can. But as a country, it was truly devastating. Truly. I mean, it's if you can imagine 200,000 people being wiped out from the U.S. all at once, you know, it's just crazy. Well, we kind of went through that with COVID not that long ago. But according to the Washington Post article, The Irish Famine, Complicity and Murder, economist Carmack Ograda stated that more than 26 million bushels of grain were exported from Ireland to England in 1845. Over the years of the famine, 9,992 Irish calves, 4,000 horses and ponies, over 822,000 gallons of butter, and food items such as beans, onions, peas, rabbits, oysters, herring, salmon, lard, and honey were also exported from Ireland to England. In fact, during the famine, crops were reported to be especially bountiful. But the Irish couldn't eat any of their own crops since they were required by their landlords to pay Britain, even if the Irish farmer couldn't pay rent. So here's another question I have for you, or just more brainstorming. (laughs) So people were dying during the famine, which means there would be less people to tend to the crops. Again, you would think that England would go, hey, we want to get y'all healthy because you're providing food for us. Or how did their production not go down? It was actually bountiful during that time. How did production not go down considering the significant loss in human life, you know? Yeah, it's a really good question, you know, and uh, Britain, for the most part, you know, I've heard said that the English Parliament wasn't even made aware of the Irish famine until it was well underway. And then you hear stories where they were still indifferent for the most part. They provided (laughs) loans. They sent cornmeal, which led to nutritional deficiencies. They funded some soup kitchens, but... The, there were issues that, that we'll talk about later. And, and even in the book, Famine Pots, uh, you know, it says that many British parliament members and civil, civil service displayed the popular thoughts of the day in England by not taking an interest in the famine. Good God. Uh, in fact, there were quotes from the Assistant Secretary of the Treasurer in 1846 that stated very, very clearly that the issue was not with the famine, but it was with the people of Ireland and you can find some of those quotes readily available online. But, you know, it, it was obviously a terrible situation for the people of Ireland. And, and I think when we can talk about this later as well, but probably what led to the Choctaw people and so many more wanting to help out in that situation. Yeah. It's like when your own government's not taking care of you, other people will step in. And, and again, that's that humanity thing, that whole like people are good. There's more good people than bad, I think. So... So yeah, ah, the Irish, the selfish Irish, even though the British were taking all their food. Who's selfish? 
So again, referencing the Washington Post article, I quote, in 1846, Prime Minister Robert Peel succeeded in repealing the Corn Laws, eliminating protective tariffs on grain imports to the United Kingdom, therefore reducing the cost of grain and bread. Peel also established the Relief Commission to coordinate relief measures in Ireland. But Lord John Russell replaced Peel as prime minister in mid-1846. Russell immediately abolished Peel's relief commission. Oh, my gosh. So under Russell's administration, all food depots except in the western seaboard were closed. Public works were suspended and local relief committees were forbidden to sell or distribute food at less than prevailing prices, which were inflated because of scarcity and speculation. The chief architect of these policies was Charles Trevelyan, assistant secretary of the Treasury that you mentioned earlier, and director of government relief, who was knighted in 1848 for his services to Ireland. So in mid-1847, Parliament amended the poor law with the Gregory Clause. The effect of this clause was to forbid public relief to any household head who held more than a quarter acre of land and refused to relinquish possession of the land to the landlord. The choice was either become landless or starve, and many Irish chose the latter. Those who chose eviction were at the tender mercies of the Russell administration. If you hear me laughing, it's not because it's funny. It's ironic. It's just, you know, this guy was knighted for his services to Ireland, and yet these people are starving to death. It's just maddening. I just, my brain just doesn't know what to do with it. So this just shows how much the Irish were seen as worthless, which is also bizarre, because if nothing else, the Irish were supplying the English with their food. So the famine is well underway. Choctaw storyteller Tim Tingle shares in the book a quote from a history professor at NYU and University College Cork, Joe Lee. From January of 1847 and throughout 1848, society as we know, it really broke down. Conditions were so bad in the workhouse, there were accounts that men were causing disturbances there, so they'd be arrested and sent to jails where conditions would be better. They'd be fed. The famine also spurred emigration. Some in the U.S. would offer free travel to those in Ireland who wished to emigrate. Over one million did so, and some Irish moved to England, a place where the Irish were severely looked down upon by the British, sort of like they also looked down upon the American Indians, right? Yeah, you know, it's interesting, and one of the things that we say a lot of times is, you know, and I think we may have talked about this, but Choctaws were actually the original co-talkers. In, in 1917, when they fought alongside the Allied forces, at that time, they weren't even considered citizens of the U.S. And so these these things aren't, aren't necessarily, uh, you know, they're very recent in history. A lot of times people will think, well, that must have been the 14 or 1500s. And, you know, you look that you're still in the early to mid 1900s when that was still the case. So, yeah, right. very, very similar. Very similar here. That's crazy. Interesting that the English would say things like, you know, the Irish only eat food that consists of potatoes and potatoes only, which is crazy to me because that's the only thing they had left to eat. So the English would say that about the Irish, and it was really their policies that were keeping the Irish eating those potatoes. So people came to graveyards to bury their families at night, and other people just died in ditches and were forgotten about. It was horrific. They were basically watching death quite a bit. So the stories of this famine are heartbreaking. Um, an English Quaker named William Forster was surveying the famine in order to seek relief for the Irish. He spoke of children who, quote, were like skeletons, their features sharpened with hunger and their limbs wasted, 
so that there was little left but bones. And Justice of the Peace Nicholas Cummins from County Cork wrote about how he saw in the town of Skibbereen, in the first cabin, six famished and ghastly skeletons to all appearance dead were huddled in a corner. I approached in horror and found by a low moaning they were alive. It is impossible to go through the detail. Suffice it to say that in a few minutes I was surrounded by at least 200 of such phantoms, such frightful specters as no words can describe. But by far the greater number were delirious either from famine or from fever. Their demonic yells are still ringing in my ears and their horrible images are fixed on my brain. And then Choctaw storyteller Tim Tingle also writes in the book about some of these stories too. Yeah, Tim Tim does such a great job of sharing these stories. And it's something that even if you go to our cultural centers today, you'll see uh, stories told of individuals as well as on a larger level about the Trail of Tears and, and what that experience was like. And and so we, we always recommend people to, to look look up those things. The history is out there, but it's it's one of those things where to to really understand the Chetanoa Aya, which is the Choctaw journey, you really have to understand some of those conditions and what our people went through. And I always tell people today that, that if you if you're native, it's because you come from survivors. You come from people that were strong and survived terrible, terrible conditions. And that's not a small thing. That's a that's a really big thing. And so, mm-hmm. uh, and and Tim does a great job of, of of sharing that. So yeah, please, you know, anybody out there who wants to come check out the cultural center to learn more about that Choctaw journey, uh, or you know, reach out to us if you want to know more about the Trail of Tears. Well, and and um, also side note, you and I were just talking earlier. There's a new display there at the cultural center, right? Tell us more about that. This wasn't planned, but I figured we should give a plug there for that. And I'll go by and take pictures in a minute. It's incredible. So it's called Chiefs, Clans, and Kin, which it's basically uh, one of our temporary exhibits that talks primarily about the relationship with uh, Choctaw Nation in Ireland. And it's an art project. So you'll see Irish artists, you'll see native artists, you'll see people that are both uh, native and Irish. And it gives them an opportunity to share that story and tell uh, part of their history as well as that relationship with Choctaw and Ireland. I love that. And again, as you can see, Seth and I are really um, addressing the atrocities that happened with the Irish. And later we'll talk about that with the Choctaw as well. But we also want to remember everything in life is kind of like a perspective. And I do love that about our tribe that faith family culture is that moving forward process of addressing the past, but moving towards the future. So, you know, we talk sometimes about that seven generation mentality where you look forward seven generations, you you do everything you can to help them. You look back seven generations to learn from your past and that history. And so that, that's what our people try to do. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Every time I talk to you, I get some new little <laughs> nugget. Well, I, I'm, I'm fortunate to be able to talk to a lot of our elders and culture keepers. And so I always feel like I learned something from them. Yeah. Uh, just the same. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I'm so jealous. <laughs> so we were talking about Tim Tingle. And there was a guide when Tim had gone to Ireland uh, for the Cape Clear Storytelling Festival. And um, so he went. He went on this coastal tour with an Irish man, and he took the, him, Tim, and the tour group to a stone church. And he told the heart wrenching story of a British nobleman who, during the famine, built that church. And at a time when children and their parents were starving, the church denounced food was coming from Britain to feed the townspeople. 
And at the start of the service, a man from the church announced that food would come twice a week. However, the food would come at a price. The townspeople would have to renounce their Catholic faith and become Protestant, which is a very British faith. And this continued on in soup kitchens set up by Protestant churches. So if you'd like to live and not starve, join our faith was the overall theme. The theme also was initiated when it came to clothing. So Catholics who accepted new clothing, acting as if they'd converted to Protestantism, were soon caught in their Catholic services the following Sunday and were reported as thieves. Herman Melville, an American author, wrote about his observance of the starving Irish in his book Redburn, His First Voyage. Old women, rather than mummies, drying up with slow starving and age. Young girls, incurably sick who ought to have been in the hospital, sturdy men with the gallows in their eyes and a whining lie in their mouths, young boys hollow-eyed and decrepit and puny mothers holding up puny babies in the glare of the sun formed the main features of the scene. In contrast, Nathaniel Hawthorne wrote about his perspective. The people are as numerous as maggots in cheese. You behold them disgusting and all moving about. Where was the compassion, Nathaniel? I'd like to ask. Yeah, you know, there, there's so many stories that I've heard shared from uh, the people of Ireland, as well as, you know, Choctaws that shared these stories on the Trail of Tears. There's just such a commonality there. And the unmarked graves, the, you know, the cruelty that was shown. And, and so, those, like I said earlier, those are, those are those stories that are so important to understand where we come from and that we're, we're survivors as, as Native people. And I think the people of Ireland have that same spirit as well. Absolutely. Survivors. Most Choctaws know of the present-day commemorative Trail of Tears walk in Oklahoma, in which 2.5 miles are retraced each year. But many may not know that Ireland also has a famine walk in County Mayo, which commemorates the Dulo tragedy of 1849. This event is in memory of the Irish, who were told by the British Crown that they would be given relief if they walked 11 miles to a distribution site to receive food. Once they arrived at the distribution site, they were turned away, empty-handed. And I had to go find why that happened, like why were they turned away. So in doing a little research, um, Frank Mur Murphy in a 2022 article in Irish Central wrote, when the people had eventually got to Delphi Lodge, they were told that the guardians could not be disturbed while they were taking their lunch. When they finally did see them, the people were sent away empty-handed, and most of them died on their journey back. So remember, they're starving at this point, so they were weak, and it was extremely cold out, so many didn't make it through the journey, dying along the way home. So later, people found corpses by the side of the road, where you're standing with grass in their mouths that they had been eating for want of food, Frank Murphy wrote. By the way, in Manhattan, New York, there is a stone from the famine era from a cottage from County Mayo given by the Irish. It reads, the children of the forest are red brethren of the Choctaw Nation. So I still come back to none of this should have happened and it could have been avoided, you know? It could have been avoided. You're exactly right. And I, I think that's one of the things we always look back on. And obviously 2020 vision, look back, you, you know, are able to get that perspective but, um, you know, there were so many things that, you know, would would if they were done differently, you could have had fewer loss of life or if you done if you had started the removals a different type of year, um, 
you know, versus winter. And so you sometimes you have to think, well, maybe these things were done intentionally, you mm-hmm. know, during these times of year, oh, during the time of year that they, uh, you know, remove them. And there were several removals, you know, it wasn't just one large one. There were several removals over, over several decades. Uh, but yeah, you see those same things with the people of Ireland. And then you see the quotes, you know, from the officials and, um, you know, it's, it's at times it can seem more intentional than by accident. It's difficult to hear these stories, but just as our Native ancestors suffered and deserve to have their stories told, so do these Irish who suffered. And speaking of our ancestors, let's travel 4,100 miles from Ireland to the United States and back up time to about 13 years prior to the Irish famine to a people who also suffered greatly. Tell us about the removal of our Choctaw people known to most as the Trail of Tears. Yeah, and this is this is a term that is is very common commonly used uh, in, to reference the removal of several native tribes uh, from their homeland to what what would become reservations. But for the Choctaws, this meant with the Treaty of Dancing Rabbit Creek that was signed, and um, I always um, you know want to take a moment there to say you know it, it was one of those hard decisions and you see uh, in writing quotes from the chiefs and, and other tribal members at that time that describe that decision and how hard that must have been to be picked up from your yes. homeland, uh, where your people are from, where you've built a civilization um, and forced to travel to an area that you don't know anything about. Mm-hmm. And that, like I said earlier, that happened for Several decades, those removals happened, and today you have the Mississippi Band, Choctaw, and, and then you have the Oklahoma Band. But mm-hmm. you know, it all started with that Treaty of Dancing Rabbit Creek, and then less than two decades later, when they saw the people of Ireland, what they were going through, you know, they they were very familiar with what that felt like—the starvation, the inability to have a say so of what happens to you in your life. And um, they recognize that. And I, I still think today that that's a great example of what Chief today calls the Chutta spirit. And the way that I get to see that so often is through generosity when our tribe helps out in times when mm-hmm. it's, it's so needed. And so I, th- I think that is a, a great example of that. And I think that is something that has been passed down to us from our, our ancestors. Really well said. Because it could have been easy for the Choctaw to go, we just went through hell, we're trying to get a breath ourselves right now, and we'll talk a little bit more about that timing of that, which is interesting, when they did give the money to the Irish. Instead, they wanted to turn it around and give back. That's just mind-blowing. So within the Famine Pots book, Philip Carroll Morgan mentions how Andrew Jackson, once a so-called friend to the Choctaw, had enjoyed victory in the War of 1812 due in part to the bravery of the Choctaw warriors. But once elected to president, he repaid them by forcing them out of their homelands, just one of the many betrayals the Choctaws faced. In 1830, the Indian Removal Act was passed by United States Congress, an act that forced the Choctaw in Mississippi and other tribes elsewhere to give up their lands and move to Indian Territory, now Oklahoma. In the book, Eamon Wall quotes from Choctaw leader George W. Hawkins, who wrote about the removal of his Choctaw people. And every time I hear this, it, it really hits hard. Um, and this goes to what you were saying. When you hear this, think about the fact that these chiefs had really to make these awful decisions that 
I'm sure no one could really be totally happy about either decision. Stay and possibly be wiped out as a tribe, maybe, or go ahead and move to these new homelands hoping that it would work out okay. So feel free to read Hawkins' quote to us, Seth. Yeah, and I'll, I'll just read it directly, but it, it's one that, you know, is, is I, I think, at the forefront of a lot of our minds when we do the commemorative walk on the Trail of Tears, which is always an emotional moment for our tribe every single year. But So I'll just read the qu- quote directly. We were hedged in by two evils and chose that which we thought least. We as Choctaws rather chose to suffer and be free than live under the degrading influence of laws where our voice could not be heard in their formation. Here is the land of our progenitors, and here are their bones. They left them as a sacred deposit as we have been compelled to venerate its trust. It is dear to us, yet we cannot stay. My people are dear to me. With them I must go. Could I stay and forget them and leave them to struggle alone, unaided, unfriended, and forgotten by our great father? I should then be unworthy the name of a Choctaw and be a disgrace to my blood. I must go with them. My destiny is cast among the Choctaw people. If they suffer, so will I. If they prosper, then I will rejoice. Let me ask you to regard us with feelings of kindness. Wow. You can just feel it. Uh, yeah, like that angst of... Yeah, it's it's difficult to imagine what he was seeing and what he was going through at that time. But yeah. uh, I think he, you know, he, he describes so much about what being Choctaw is and that's living for others and servant leadership and all those things and in the toughest of times um, you see that he he lived up to that true very true they left nearly all of their belongings behind with the promise that they'd be given provisions along the way and at their final destination they were also promised sovereignty the right to maintain self-governance Many of our Choctaw people died from harsh winter conditions, starvation, disease, and snake bite between 1831 to 1833. Jackie Thompson Rand writes, The Department of War oversaw the operation during which the dispossessed were exposed to cruel winter conditions and suffered starvation as a result of insufficient resources. The Indians, lacking blankets, winter clothing, shoes, and shelter, first gathered in stockades, then traveled unprotected from the elements. Walking through unsettled environments, some died as they became trapped in wetlands, unable to escape as winter set in. One of the Choctaw groups encountered cholera at Memphis, where severe rains delayed their departure, leaving many to perish because the organizers had failed to arrange medical care for the weeks-long relocation. A non-native farmer named Joseph Kerr wrote to the War Department to protest what he observed when the Choctaw made their way to Indian Territory, stating, I live now on the side of and within 40 feet of the road, and the only one by which the Choctaw Indians have passed and must pass that go by land. Their extreme poverty and consequent suffering in passing last fall attracted my particular notice, and the Houston case explained to me in some measure the cause of their extreme suffering from hunger while passing. Here they received worse than a scanty supply to do them 80 miles through an uninhabited country, 50 miles of which is an overflowed swamp, and in which distance are two large deep streams that must be crossed in a boat or on a raft, and one other nearly impassable in any way. And this was to be performed under the pressure of hunger by old women and young children, without any covering for their feet, legs, or body, except a cotton underdress generally. I have seen poverty amongst the northern Indians, but theirs is nothing compared to that of those of the south. 
But not only was their death along what's now known as the Trail of Tears, death awaited them also in their new territory, right? So tell us about that. Yeah, you're exactly right. And I'll just read an, an account here. But in 1833, 600 Choctaws died of an epidemic after the flooding of the Arkansas River. And in their new territory, the Choctaw and even their leader, Peter Pitchlin, at the time suffered. The, the book states that Pitchlin's livelihood, as with many others, was washed away by the flooding of the Arkansas River during his family's first summer in the territory. So you imagine everything that they just came from. And now they are going through this and disease and spoiled food, public hygiene challenges, whiskey peddlers and the depredations of others, often criminal fugitives fleeing the United States and bad weather were the routine perils of life Choctaws face in their new home. This and many other struggles, you know, just led to really tough conditions when you consider where they came from a place where they had a great civilization and they'd really become a strong group of people. And now they were in this new location and that had to be difficult in so many ways. Yeah. And, and the home of their ancestors and their ancestors, ancestors. I mean, this went back how many years? So, um, so sad. It'd be hard. Absolutely. And, you know, some, sometimes I'll hear people say, well, we think in some ways they were really anticipating this new start, like new land, new start. And that could have been true for some of them, but that didn't make the journey any less terrifying. And I don't know, it's it's interesting. And also, you know, you think about when you're a child, some of the scariest things you can think of are, are my mommy and daddy going to divorce? Or do we have enough food? Or things like that, depending on your situation. And can you imagine being hearing, being a kid and hearing those conversations about, we think we're going to be driven out of here. We're going to have to leave and just take your essentials, everybody, leave everything else behind. Um, I try to think of it from the kid's perspective too sometimes. Yeah, but. it's so difficult. And you think back and, you know, it's it's easy in modern terms to think of that shut to spirit, but you think about that that truly is something that was passed down to us from our ancestors and the fact that our tribe is still here and thriving and strong is because of them. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know at the time if they could have thought of what the tribe would be today, but I, I do think that they believe that, you know, that the blood in their veins was strong, that they were survivors and that they had to do that for their families. And yeah, I, I look at Choctaws today and, and think, um, you know, you can just see that that spirit of survival in them still today. Agreed. Agreed. That's, I mean, it's pretty interesting when you do look at it that way. We have to keep that in mind as we tell these stories. And yet, despite leaving their homeland, suffering along the way amongst starvation and death, the Choctaw still thought of others, as you just said. The town of Scullyville in Indian Territory was a hub of the start of the story of the gift from the Choctaw to the Irish. Pedro Kirwan writes in the book, In the winter of 1847, as the people of Ireland were being struck by a devastating famine, members of the Choctaw Nation met in a small town in Indian Territory called Scullyville. There, members of the tribe discussed the experiences of the Irish poor, and it was proposed that they would gather together what monies they could spare in the wake of their recent removal from their tribal homelands east of the Mississippi River. Ultimately, they collected $710, a sum roughly equivalent to about $20,000 today. But have there been some debates around the amount? I keep seeing that. Yeah, that's that's been an interesting conversation. So you'll see a number of different accounts. You'll see 170, 172, 710. 
but actually some that I've just re- most recently look, looked at, it seems like the 710 number appears to be the most accurate. Oh, really? So it's even more, th- I mean, $172, for instance, would have been a lot to the Choctaw back then, but it's it's maybe a whole lot more than that. It probably is the 710 now, huh? Yeah, and the interesting thing about that, and I think you'll you'll understand this, but it's never about the dollar amount. But they did give, and I, I think that that spirit of generosity and that chutz of spirit that they showed is is probably the most important thing there. Right. Let's get to the heart of the matter, which was they exactly. gave what they could, you know. Exactly. So more about Scullyville. According to the book, Philip Carroll Morgan also mentions that Iskali, which means money in Choctaw, is where Scullyville derived its name. Normally, this was where they came to gather their disbursements from the government, according to the treaties stating that they'd be paid for the land that they gave up in Mississippi. But now it was also a place to give. And Leanne Howe writes about how Scullyville was the place to also hear news. So by springtime of 1847, the Choctaw had started to hear the news of the Irish starving. Some accounts state that upon hearing the news, the Choctaws cried. And so in 1847, the Choctaw made their official gift to the Irish. Pausing on the topic of the gift for a moment, because I'm always interested in the places where these different events took place in history. So let's hear just a little bit more about Scullyville. Yeah, actually, Choctaw storyteller Tim Tingle writes in his book about this town of Scullyville. And he says, by the 1890s, Scullyville was booming and prosperous, the third largest town in all of eastern Oklahoma. It was home to the New Hope Academy for Girls, which was a popular Indian boarding school with hundreds of Choctaw girls in attendance. And Fort Coffee School for boys was less than 10 miles away. Scullyville had a bustling main street with clothing and hardware stores, feed stores, restaurants. Even the stagecoach connecting major cities from St. Louis to California stopped first in Scullyville before they headed west. So you can imagine the scene, hundreds of Choctaws moving about and making monthly purchases at the stores downtown. But that was half a century later after the gift to the Irish. Such was the prosperity of Scullyville when the Union Pacific Railroad announced a plan to build a cross-continental railroad. Scullyville was chosen as the first Oklahoma stop. If Scullyville was literally money town now, a railroad would bring it with it unbelievable wealth to the community. Lingering in the shadows was a small town of Spyro populated by white settlers, illegal immigrants to Choctaw Nation. When residents heard of the railroad's plans to build a station in Scullyville, greed began to grow. Choctaw homes were burned, people were threatened, and just before midnight on New Year's Eve, January 1st, 1897, New Hope Academy for Girls was burned to the ground, and many of those lost their life in that fire. So, I mean, just like as you mentioned earlier, when they were in Mississippi, they were a thriving community. In fact, some of them were noted as prominent. And then they come here, they rebuild, and then this kind of thing happens in Mm -hmm. some of those towns. So terrible. And from there, many Choctaw moved away from Scullyville. But I love that our Choctaw people heard about the famine and wanted to help. And then that, you know, compassion and love shown to others is really the Choctaw way. Before we delve into what the book says, what's your take on the reason the Choctaw gathered and shared funds for the relief of the famine? Yeah, I think it's it's very similar um, to the idea that we were talking about earlier, that when you see people in need, I, I think we do have a spirit to help. And we would do anything uh, to help people, especially when you see somebody who has been through something very similar mm-hmm. to what you're still going through. 
You know, I think this is the 175th anniversary of that gift in 1847. And so to think that that story is still being told to this day, I don't think they gave that money so that the story would be told. I think they gave it because um, they they understood it. And that's just part of who we are as a people. And I think that will continue for many, many generations into the future because I, I think that's just who we are as Choctaw people. Agreed. We, we step up when we're needed, Absolutely. you know? I found it interesting, the new light the book shed for me, at least on the kindness from the Choctaw to the Irish, in that, that there was a kinship that had developed in America for over 170 years. And that's why it's so fitting that the sculpture is made is, is titled the way it is. But here are some stories that make me believe that friendship among the sum of the two parties really was real. So first off, Duncan Smith, a Scots-Irish, was an abolitionist and friend to the Choctaw leader and later chief, Peter Pitchlin, whom he joined in helping to gather some of the remaining Choctaws in Mississippi to move them to Indian Territory in hopes of finding them a better situation in 1847. So, and then another story, Choctaw storyteller Tim Tingle writes in the book of his own great uncle, Clarence Carnes, who was, do you think it's Carnes? I think it's Carnes. Okay. Um, Another story, Choctaw storyteller Tim Tingle writes in the book of his own great uncle, Clarence Carnes, who was laid to rest in a cemetery for the poor in Kansas in an unmarked grave. And then an Irish friend of his heard about his burial and came from Boston to ensure Clarence's body was moved to his hometown in Daisy, Oklahoma. And by the way, when I think about the names of many of our Choctaw people, there are a lot of Irish names in there. Yeah, you're exactly right. And even the book mentions Choctaw Chiefs, Irish and Scottish slash names like McCurtain, McKinney, uh, Kincaid, Garvin, Cole, Harkins and, and McCoy. And you see you see those names still in Choctaw families today. You really do. <laughs> and my own, too. So and it's something I never thought of that many years of Irish Choctaw friendship had been taking place in the United States and how when the Choctaw heard of their friends homeland suffering so many deaths among their people, it was again time to help. Yeah, absolutely. And Jackie even mentioned that during the famine, the Irish escaped starvation and British rule by coming to the United States and found both ample food supply and freedom. And there is a a sense of celebration in that fact as well. Yeah, truly. And interestingly enough, March 23rd, 1847 was the very day the Choctaw sent their gift to Ireland. And it was also the same day more Choctaws from Mississippi who had stayed behind when the first removals had taken place. They were being prepared to travel 600 miles for yet another emigration to Indian Territory. And that's something that some people may may not know. There were approximately 6,000 Choctaws who had remained behind it and not travel that so-called Trail of Tears during their first removals. And they had been promised tribal lands, but they were treated very poorly and suffered greatly and retreated into East Central Mississippi. So what I think is interesting about the Choctaws giving to the Irish is that the Choctaw badly needed the money themselves at that time when they gave. So since they were new to Indian territory and were even in need of housing and food themselves, you know, here they still gave, right? Yeah, it's it's one of the interesting things. I think you and I have probably talked about this, but, you know, even the, the name of our state, Oklahoma, uh, means uh, red people or red man, Oka, mm-hmm. Okla, meaning people, Homa, meaning red. Um, but one of the more interesting, uh, more traditional 
meanings of that is that Homa was a tag put on the greatest warrior's name so that if you didn't run, if you didn't retreat in battle, they would put Homa at the end of mm-hmm. your name. So a name for our state is actually the people who don't run or those who don't retreat, which I, I think is pretty, pretty amazing. And I, I think it's just that same spirit. Here were people that were up against the greatest challenges anybody could ever go through. Mm-hmm. And they were hitting that uh, head on and just facing it and not only doing that, but they were seeing another group of people and they said, we're going to, not only are we going to uh, handle what we're going through, but we're also going to do everything we can to stop things like that from ha- happening. And uh, when other people are going through that, we're going to do everything that we can to help them. And I just, I think that's a, a, such a great example that almost two centuries ago still lives on today. Yes, absolutely. And, and I suppose even, when you've been th- through something so tragic, as you were mentioning earlier, you really can't help but have the grace and understanding to consider others. And and part of the reason we're saying that is because some people talk to us and say they, they just can't grasp why they would do that, of people that are so have been through so much would still give so much to others. It's worth noting that many others also gave to aid the Irish during the famine, such as Calcutta and Boston, and notable figures like Pope Pius IX and Queen Victoria, U.S. President James Polk donated $50, which is $1,307 in today's money. And the book lists pages of donations given by many people, churches and foundations and more. But those who stand out to me were groups such as Caribbean former slaves and orphanage who was able to pull $2 together and even Sing Sing prisoners found a way to donate. It's notable, too, though, that Queen Victoria was criticized for sending a small amount (laughs) compared to others considering her wealth. People tended to focus on two donations, especially, though, the the Queen Victoria's that I mentioned and then the Choctaws due to the low amount given by a wealthy figure as compared to the high amount given by the Choctaw considering their situation. Now, the spirit of giving was there amongst so many people and groups, but there were some hiccups along the way too, right? Yeah, absolutely. In the book, Christine Keenly uh, talks about how since relief was usually coming in the form of money and not food, the money provided wasn't reaching as far as it could. So for instance, Indian corn in Ireland was selling for double the price in the U.S. So in 1847, instead of money, provisions such as flour, cornmeal, Indian corn, beans, barley, pork, beef, cheese, and clothing were provided. They were then sent to Dublin first to be distributed as as needed, since Dublin had all those appropriate links of navigation to even remote uh, parts of the country. Subsequent deliveries landed in Liverpool, England, who paid for freight charges of the aid headed to Ireland. Upon arrival of the goods, there were expenses such as landing, agency costs, storage, and transportation to the poorest districts. And I can imagine it, it really was quite a feat, getting the food and the goods and money to the Irish and the little hiccups along the way. I tend to think about the Irish and the Choctaw as both being victims of conquest and colonization. There are commonalities between the Choctaw and the Irish, for instance, as Wounded Knee Massacre in Native American history and the Vinegar Hill incident in which the United Irish were defeated by the English, you know, very similar circumstances. And then the ancient Irish lands and the Choctaw with their roots of Naniwea, they both tell tales of old and the birth of their people and lands. And there's a lot of oral history there, too, between the two. Yeah, lots of history there. Uh, Irish poet Iman Wall writes in the book about how the Irish 
just like the Choctaw, rely quite a bit on oral history and storytelling. And humor also tends to be a common resort of both. Both are being mm-hmm. in direct rebellion to the, quote, European culture, orthodoxies, and beliefs. And both also welcome others into their homes, a place of harmony, gifts being shared with others, elders being honored. And I think any of us that remember going into our grandparents' home may have felt some of those so same gifts and, and harmony yes. that they speak about. Oh, yeah. Such great memories. I love that. The book states that the two communicants in question recognized in one another a shared sense of humanity and revealed a great eagerness to lend a helping hand. They saw in one another's relationship to the land, sense of story, memories of the ancestors, and connectedness to a world beyond their nations, form of appreciation, spirituality, and generosity that resonated deeply with them. Both groups were victims of conquest that led to loss of property, forced migration and exile, mass starvation, and cultural suppression, most notably language. And then you have the British views of the Irish, similar to Andrew Jackson's view of the Choctaw. Writer and lecturer Pedrick Kirwan makes a powerful statement in the book, where Trevelyan mentioned earlier, viewed the famine as a great opportunity and an effectual remedy to the social evil found in Ireland. Andrew Jackson, then president of the United States, said many similar things. Those words clearly recall 19th century religious and economic moralism. They also recall a pronouncement made in the Times, England's paper of record in 1799, which stated, Nothing can tend to humanize the barbarous Irish as a habitual intercourse with Britain and the opportunities of observing the civilized manners of those who are from there. Although not entirely transposable, attitudes towards the Irish and the Choctaw and tribal communities in general were definitely very alike. Yeah, and talking about similarities, British rule over and colonization of the Irish caused suffering since the 11th century, where Choctaws had also suffered as well under British neocolonial descendants. Both the Irish and American Indians were deemed less than by their oppressors of the time. Yeah, truly. I mean, when you really start thinking about it and talking through it, definitely a lot of similarities. And again, this could be one more reason for that kinship that formed over time. There's There's been sculptures, commemorations, ceremonies, and even an exchange program between our people. So tell us about that Choctaw Ireland scholarship you mentioned earlier. Yeah, and th- this is one of the neatest things that we get to work on, but it, it was basically when... Uh, the Prime Minister of Ireland came to Duran a few years ago. He he just said, I, I want to commemorate this. I don't want this to live on for a long time. So I want to fund a scholarship from the government wow. of Ireland. So that started, and uh, we have sent now four recipients That's over amazing. and an additional two that just started this year. But, yeah, it's it's absolutely it's a full uh, tuition scholarship to UCC as well as a living stipend. And the goal is really for them to be ambassadors for our tribe to the people of Ireland. They do radio spots. They do TV. Wow. But more than than anything else, they get to have one-on-one conversations about what it was like being Choctaw and sharing our history wow. and parts of our culture and the regalia and all those pieces. So, yeah, it's, it's a great opportunity to really um, continue that that kindred spirit between the people of Ireland and and the Choctaw people. Yeah. And that's something interesting that I just learned from you is that whole, they're getting a scholarship to go over there to not only receive a degree, but also to be an ambassador representing our Choctaw people in Ireland. How neat is that? Yeah, it's, it's amazing. 
And now let's hear from one of those recipients about her experience studying in Ireland. Seth, feel free to introduce our guest. Yeah, so this uh, this is one of our recipients and was so excited when she got the scholarship because she grew up right here on the reservation in Wright City. And now that she's back home, we're very excited to see what her future holds. But this is Claire Green Young. Welcome, Claire. Tell us a bit about your story and what prompted you to apply for the Choctaw Ireland Scholarship. Hi, Rachel. Thank you so much for having me on Chalk Talk. I'm really excited to join you. Um, if you don't mind to start, I'd love to introduce myself to everyone. Halito Sohochipoya Claire Green Young, Amintili Wright City, Oklahoma, Micha Chatasia. So hello, my name's Claire Green Young. I'm from Wright City, Oklahoma, and I'm Choctaw. Um, I'm also the proud recent, I guess recently former recipient of the Choctaw Island Scholarship for, <laughs> yes, <laughs> for 2021-2022. So I've just completed my program. And yeah, I'd, I'd be happy to share a little bit about kind of my background and um, how I ended up here, if that sounds good to you. That sounds fantastic. And shout out to all the folks in Wright City. I know that you've made them proud. You've made me proud as a Choctaw. Oh. Um, and, you know, we have a mutual friend, Solomon Tonica, that we were talking about earlier. Um, he was in a former episode. I believe it was in season two, maybe. So, folks, yes. go check that out. He also does a great yeah, job. shout out. <laughs> Hi, Solomon. Wright City kids. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. No, right, um, right. Yeah, I'm happy to be joining as your um, second right city person on the show. I, I know we have we've... more. We have great folks down there with a lot of people to learn from at home for sure. That's right. Let's see if we can get some more. So right city folks, if you have stories to tell, just let us know. Now I totally yeah. took us off on a tangent. So I'll get oh, you back no. on track here. Um, so <laughs> yeah, you just got back right from Ireland. You yes. just got back. I, oh my gosh. I've just returned back home. Um, my journey to Ireland is kind of a bit of a long one. Um, so like I said, I'm um, born and raised Wright City, Oklahoma, and I graduated from high school at Wright City. Um, and I actually did Dartmouth College's Indigenous Fly-In program with your daughter, Alex. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> way back. Well, it, yeah, okay, way so back. we have to talk about that for a second, right? Sorry to derail again. <laughs> no. But for our listeners, um, my daughter and Claire had both gone to Dartmouth for, what was that program called? Um, it's Dartmouth's Indigenous Fly-In program. Right. And then that's where y'all met, right? Yes, Yes. And the, I ended up at Dartmouth. Yes. So you, you got, what did you get your undergrad in? Yes. I just, so in June of 2021, I graduated with my BA in religion and history with a modification in native American studies. Fantastic. And I, I highly yes. recommend that because, um, Alex really loved Dartmouth as well and started to go there, ended up going to another college to Yale, but she, she just was in- graduated from Yale. Shout right. out to Alex. Woo! Go Incredible. Alex. <laughs> yes. She made yeah, it. Incredible time there, But I, I'm the same as you. Like I recommend that program to every um, 
you know, rising high school senior, I always am talking about that. I worked for admissions at Dartmouth my senior year, actually, and recruited a lot of Native oh, students. Wow. I think the class of 2025 has one of the highest numbers of Choctaw students because I was um, a senior fellow in the admissions office. <laughs> wow. So, well, and yeah, yeah. honestly, like, and by the way, that's an awesome way to represent, right? To have <laughs> someone like yourself oh, in definitely. admissions. Um, I think that a lot of people don't realize that the Ivy Leagues do have pr- some pretty good Native American programs and studies mm-hmm. and that kind of thing. You and, have to really you look know, into great it, communities but... there. Yes, I I think so. It's I mean I'm sure that you know hopefully me and you will get to chat again, Rachel, and I can share more about that because yeah, um, you know Native kids in higher education that's something that I'm really passionate about as well. Um, And that's probably because of my own journey. So like I said, from Wright City, from Little Wright City, which I Mm -hmm. I hope everyone should know at this point, you know, we're probably 500 people somewhere around there, very Mm -hmm. small town to Dartmouth um, and Hanover, New Hampshire, where I graduated my BA. Um, And yeah, from there, I was in touch with the Cheddar Foundation and Mm -hmm. um, about this program, the Choctaw Ireland Scholarship. And I actually remember whenever this program first launched, because it was posted about on the tribal Facebook page, which if you're talked on, everybody follows. Absolutely. Everybody's. I saw it. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And I had so many people from home tag me in that post. Um, And that just meant a lot to me, number one, because, you know, everything that I do, all of the work that I do is for my community at home. So it's incredible to see them have such faith in my ability to go and, you know, do things like that and and receive a scholarship as incredible as this and and live abroad for a year. So even before I had, you know, even been able to qualify for applying for the scholarship, I it was on my radar, Mm -hmm. um, so to speak. So that's how I heard about it. And I was put in touch with the first two incredible Chattahoyo Choctaw women who received the scholarship prior to me. But um, my year, uh, we were lucky enough to have two scholarship recipients, myself and Austin West. Um, and that was, it was great. It was because this is actually the 75th anniversary of the gift um, that the Choctaw people, our ancestors, gave to the Irish people during the potato famine. Um, and so the Irish government and the tribe decided to have two scholarship recipients. And it was such an incredible experience, wow. such an incredible bonding experience that they decided to have two again this year, who I was lucky enough to meet both of them before I left, which was incredible to share that um, experience with them both. Oh, absolutely. And so when you got accepted to the program. How did that happen? Were you so excited? Mm -hmm. Yes. Oh my gosh. It was very nerve wracking. I was, (laughs) you know, wrapping up senior year of Dartmouth. My family's there for graduation. I'm, I'm trying to be in touch with Seth all the time, but not, not bug him about, did I get it? Did I not? (laughs) Um, Yeah. Right. Very nerve wracking. (laughs) Um, Because I was also, you know, juggling other um, job opportunities and different things outside of the scholarship. But this was my clear first choice. I had studied abroad twice at Dartmouth already, and I knew I was ready for a full year of living abroad. Mm -hmm. And so it was actually the day after my graduation, if you can believe that. So all the way to graduation, people are asking me, what are you doing after graduation? And, Uh, you know, I don't have a clear answer. And the day after Seth calls me and I walked out of the room to take the call and I came back in and I, you know, 
I gave my mom and Andrew, my dad and my, my sisters and my brother, the, Oh, I just got the phone call and I psyched everyone out. You acted like you didn't get it. Yes. Yes. (laughs) And they were just so proud. And it was such a nice moment between all of us, you know, and it just turned out perfectly that I was surrounded by them and, and able to, you know, just kind of be held in that excitement with family. Totally. Oh my mm-hmm. gosh, that's so exciting. I love that. I, yes. I know that heartbeat feeling when you know your heart's pounding. Yes. <laughs> and then you get the yes, you get goosebumps. Yes. I wonder if it's really real. Well, that's that's exciting. And I'm so glad that you got to go over there and represent. And it sounds like from Seth that it really is not just studying in Ireland. You are representing your tribe. Um, you do mm-hmm. speaking engagements and that kind of thing. Tell us a little bit more about that. Mm-hmm. Most definitely. Um, It is something that from the very beginning, you know, I feel like because I did go to undergraduate away from home, I was able to realize how important it is to me to to be um, to represent my tribe in a good way to represent our culture and my heritage and our people in a way that reflects um, the values of Mm -hmm. our people at home. And so, you know, because of that, I was already a bit prepared for what it would be like um, to be away from home. Um, however, it's a bit different being in the United States versus abroad. Um, and so there is a definitely, I think, a learning curve of figuring out how to interact with folks who, you know, especially in Ireland, who have never met a Native person. Oh, um, and right. so there's a lot of opportunities to, to speak about that experience um, and to share that experience and to learn about, you know, a different culture as well living in Ireland but um yeah it's definitely it's a it's a representative role it's not just a scholarship role um there's something to be said about you know talking to newspapers speaking in front of your class having you know I had professors asking me if I could go to their kids school and give a presentation and you know wow. things like that <laughs> yes so and I you know so met cool. the president of the college at UCC and just I did a um, interview with my co-scholarship recipient for Smithsonian Magazine. Um, Amazing. You know, there are a lot of roles like that. <laughs> That's really cool. Kind of an ambassador for yes. the tribe. Yeah. And- and I, yes. Yeah. And that's something that was also really important to me was even though I would be living away from home for a year, it was to feel connected to home still. Sure. And this was the perfect program for that. That's great. And I mean, you mentioned kind of that cultural difference in Ireland. What did you think about Ireland itself? I I've been there one time. Oh I was gosh. there for the castles, by the way. Um, oh, of course. <laughs> <laughs> so, what did you think about Ireland and and you know the people of Ireland? I love Ireland so much. I know you know I've been there for a year now at this point, and it truly did become just a second home for me. Um, I think that Irish people are you know similar to native people we have this very specific kind of humor that you know despite everything we've been through you know despite colonizations for both parties involved under the british and whoever else you know there's this lingering sense of generational humor where through everything you know we we kind of have this kinship in that way but not only is there a kinship in that way i feel like because of the gift there is this lingering kinship between the Choctaw people and the Irish people. Um, I would get in a taxi cab, you know, and tell someone I'm from Oklahoma 
And, you know, they may not know exactly where that is, but if they start digging and asking me why I'm at UCC, what I, how I ended up in Ireland, and I share that I'm Choctaw, you know, there are actually a lot of folks who know about that gift and who will come up to you and say, thank you. Oh, I remember gosh. actually, yes, it's so beautiful. And I remember actually my second day in Ireland, I did an interview for RTE One, which is the Irish television network about the Choctaw Ireland gift. Mm-hmm. And um, this random Irish man came up to me in my hotel room. I was in my traditional Choctaw dress and said, I love your outfit. You know, do you mind if I ask you what this is for? And I said, I'm Choctaw and I'm here doing an interview for RT one about the Choctaw Ireland um, connection. And he said, I know about that. And I was like, you do. And that was my first experience with someone saying that they do remember that and they know about it. And that's amazing. He hugged me. He hugged me and he said, I just want to say thank you from my ancestors. yours." <sighs> and it was, it was such a powerful, beautiful experience. And, you know, I kind of felt like right then that I knew that this was going to be a really special year for me. Right. It, it just, I just got goosebumps and tears. Um, I know. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's so cool. It just kind of brings it all together. And so, and so that was that moment where you were like, hey, this is going to be really cool. This is not just because I'm sure there was all this preparation and paperwork and packing. Yes. And, and then that happens. It had to have been so cool. Oh my gosh. Yes. Of course, there's so much that goes behind an international move, but you know, moments like those make it so worth it. So Um, worth it. You know, and also I, I don't know. um, So my personal background is both Choctaw and Irish ancestry. But like I said, I grew up in Wright city and I think that I was very firmly rooted in in being Choctaw and I knew less about what it meant to be Irish. Um, and not that I can claim that as a true lived experience, but I feel so much more deeply connected to my ancestors and to my heritage on that side of my family now. And I feel so thankful that Seth and the tribe, you know, believed in me and, and trusted me to represent the Choctaw Nation while respectfully learning about, you know, the other side of my heritage. And, you know, that was just an opportunity that, you know, I couldn't pass up. <laughs> it was a dream. Well said. Well said. And that's, that's so interesting that you're kind of like a lot of Choctaw out there, I think that also have that Irish um, connection mm-hmm. as well, but maybe they're not, they haven't researched a lot of it or whatever. Cause you can, a lot of times when people start researching the Choctaw side, it's like, it's kind of a challenge because it's hard to find anything mm-hmm. where a lot of times you go to ancestry and you put McNulty in there and you're going to find something or whatever. <laughs> <Yes>. um, <laughs> so <laughs> when you were over there, did you research, did you see any, um, I don't know, grave, grave sites or anything that you were related um, to? Not those so, you know, not so much um, that side of things, but, um, you know, feeling such a kinship with the land, there was something that was really special to me. Um, you know, I think like anyone ups and downs challenges come with each year and something that really gave me peace of mind was even when I was in the city in Cork City where you're you're located if you're a scholarship recipient the River Lee runs through the city and it's such a blessing to be near water and to have access to a river like that to be able to go on peaceful walks Mm. and also Ireland is such a beautiful country that you can take a train 15 minutes and you're out in the countryside and able to just commune and and be present in a way that's different from being in a city you know yeah so it was really special to me to connect in that way that lush green 
Irish yes. terrain. Oh, so it rained pretty. so much. Did it? It's so beautiful. <laughs> it's so beautiful all year because of it. The Emerald wow. Isle. Truly. <laughs> truly the Emerald Isle. And if I recall correctly, there were yellow flowers everywhere. Did you see those too? Oh my gosh. I'm telling you, the just the flora and fauna everywhere is stunning. Wow. Um, you know, anywhere you go, it's just gorgeous, especially in the spring, you know, just stunning. When my family, they, uh, my program, I did my MA in museum studies, actually. And I had an exhibition opening at Cork Public Museum at, and my family was able to come and you know, my mom has never been abroad before. So that was a really special experience for us. And, you know, they were just blown away by all of the greenery on campus. Oh my gosh. Flowers. Right. (laughs) Yes. So obviously we've been talking about kindred spirits, the sculpture that's out there. That's just absolutely beautiful. Did you get a chance to go see it? Yes, I did actually. So I, it was the first day trip that my co-scholarship and I did together and um, we went out, we took just a 15 minute train out outside of the city to Middleton and we got to, you know, be present together um, and check out the Kindred Spirits monument that they have there. And it's absolutely stunning. I'm, you know, like I said, I'm a museum studies girl and mm-hmm. that includes anything art related. So just seeing that sculpture in person, the amount of detail that is etched into every feather there is just so beautiful and I think really represents the individual and unique experiences of Choctaw and Irish people um so it was really special to go out there together also um you know I think that it was really a blessing that I was able to be in Ireland with another Choctaw person at the same time yeah um, and to feel that sense of community as being present you know in a place so far away and then to be able to go to Kindred Spirits and know that other Choctaw people have been there, danced there, you know, mm. communed with Irish people, joined together in this celebration of such an incredible and long history. Um, yeah, it was an awesome moment for us. That's fantastic. And I, now that you said that, I bet it really was nice to have another um, Choctaw there with you doing some of these experiences and weren't having to go through all of this alone as much as as wonderful as it was I know it can be hard to be away oh, from totally. home and <laughs> mm-hmm. it can be a struggle definitely so it was oh, yeah. much appreciated it turned out exactly how it was supposed to be with the two recipients good good well and when you were talking about the details in the feathers as beautiful as the the monument is when you're looking at a photo, um, you don't see a lot of that detail. So I, I bet seeing it in person was, was pretty cool. So exactly. Yes. So what would you tell other students that are thinking of studying in Ireland, whether through this program or just on their own? I would definitely encourage students to look into those options, um, whether through this program or another, I think that one of the biggest takeaways that I have about Ireland is that the people are so friendly and they're so family oriented. Um, My roommate actually became one of my best friends and he and his mom took me in and really became my Irish family there. And, you know, now I will always have a home in Ireland waiting for me, which is pretty special. And I would say that that's an experience that a lot of international students, they find 
um, Irish students there who become lifelong friends, you know, and that's a really special and unique experience about studying abroad is that you can make friends from all of these different countries and keep those connections throughout your lifetime. And I think that's really special. I also would encourage it because you can really become a global citizen. You learn so much more about yourself and the world Mm, when you mm -hmm. travel, when you study in other countries, when you learn and listen to different perspectives. And I think that's taught me so much, you know, as much as I've learned at home, I've learned abroad. And I think that that's something beautiful. I would also say to anyone interested in the Choctaw Ireland scholarship program, any Choctaw students out there, if you're like me from Wright City and you've struggled to, you know, <laughs> right. you've struggled to, you've sometimes struggled with that imposter syndrome of, you know, how can I do this? You know, I just want to say, please believe in yourself and know your worth, know that it is possible and that you can do it and that you can survive out there. I know that it seems daunting to be out in such a, a big world, um, but there's so much waiting for you out there. And I just think that, you know, I highly encourage everyone to, whether it's applying for this program or looking into different um, opportunities for studying abroad, um, I definitely encourage it. And specifically in Ireland, um, there's no place like it. The people just, they make the place incredible. I love that. Thank you to the people of Ireland. And I love that you were able to form your own version of kindred spirits by meeting others and making friends over there. These will be your lifelong friends. Who knows? Maybe they'll come over and get to see us a little bit too. That's the plan. (laughs) (laughs) And as far as your um, words to others who maybe were like yourself, they were like me, you know, coming from these small towns and um, sometimes even being a little bit afraid of the world (laughs) and what's out there and all that. You are so right. When you get out there, I think you become even a more empathetic person because you start to meet all kinds of Mm -hmm. people, different languages, different cultures, and you Mm -hmm. start to realize, okay, there's more than just me out there. Everybody struggles. Everybody finds peace and harmony in different ways. Mm -hmm. So exactly. um, so, so well said. Thank you for sharing that. And thank you for sharing about your experience. I'm wishing you luck as you continue your adventures and Yakuki. Yakuki, thank you so much, Rachel. It's just incredible. And I'm, I just want to say that, you know, I'm so proud to know you and to know Alex and to be a part of your incredible podcast. Thank you for having me and for, you know, hearing my story. Absolutely. We so appreciate it. God bless. So Seth, what are the eligibility requirements for this Choctaw Ireland program? Yeah, so pretty basic. And if anybody wants to check them out, they can go to ChoctawFoundation.com to to look at the requirements. But pretty simple. You need to be a member of the Choctaw Nation of Oklahoma, interested in a one-year taught master's degree, uh, be accepted to the University College Cork, which if you get a chance to watch the videos that we have posted on what UCC campus Oh, Looks man. Like you will absolutely fall in love. Yeah. It's, it's amazing. And uh, it needs to be a degree from the College of Arts, Celtic Studies, and Social Sciences at UCC. And then finally, obviously, you'll be traveling, so you need to have a valid passport. Oh, awesome. I would love to sign up myself if only I weren't old. And what do Choctaw Nation of Oklahoma members need to do to be considered for this program? Yeah, so the application process every year gets more and more competitive. Uh, But you'll follow the step-by-step process, apply to UCC, be accepted, apply for the scholarship, 
And then there is a scholarship application that you'll fill out and then you'll go through the process. Uh, there typically is an interview process involved. The reason for that is because since these students are ambassadors, they'll need to do, like I said, radio spots. You know, almost it can almost be like a PR position in many ways mm -hmm. uh, just because of all the media that you have to do. But we'll do some interviews, and that is a combination of people from UCC as well as the Choctaw Nation doing that. And every single year, I, I can't tell you of, of the dozens of students that have applied so many are deserving. I mean, they, they all truly would do oh. an absolutely unbelievable job. And for me, that's so exciting just to see how many talented young Choctaws we have out there that are doing a great job of representing their tribe. Absolutely. I mean, that, that does take a very talented Choctaw, and we have a lot of those in our tribe. So that would be a really hard decision to make. But I love that the gift just keeps on giving. And this bridge between two countries and peoples is really strong. And over 10 years prior to that gift that was given to the Irish, just 10 years prior, many Choctaws, as we said, died on that journey. And from the book, unfortunately, the Native tribes people of America experienced essentially the opposite transformation from centuries of relative freedom and abundance to dispossession and death and almost extinction. From that time, the sustainable European colonial enterprises began in North America during the early 17th century to the polling of the U.S. Census in 1900. Native American population plummeted from 10 million, by conservative estimates, to 400,000, with the majority of the survivors speaking only English. Natives went from living in a land of linguistic diversity that held at least 100 different languages to a land desolate of native languages in less than a century. This is a 96% loss in population, genocide, if you will. So our indigenous population has never recovered, and same with the Irish as well, correct? Yeah, that's correct. History.com states even today, more than 150 years later, Ireland's population has still not recovered its pre-famine level. Those that stayed behind, haunted by their country's suffering, would form the basis of an Irish independence movement that continued into the 20th century. Wow. So before I close with some words from Tim Tingle, Seth, are there any words of wisdom you'd like to share with us on this 175th anniversary of the Choctaw gift? Yeah, I just want to say thank you to the people of Ireland that, that made um, that scholarship possible. Uh, every, every single year we receive dozens of donations from people of Ireland that often come with well-written letters really, and they describe the, the feeling that they have and, and the, uh, the, the kindred spirit that we share with them. And so I just want to say thank you to all of them. And then, um, thank you for this opportunity to share this story and bring attention to, uh, the, this amazing relationship that we have with the people of Ireland. Absolutely. And it's truly a pleasure. I find this passage from Tim Tingle in the book to be insightful and healing. He writes, whatever high crimes and mass deaths and lasting pain can be attributed to the perpetrators of genocide on innocent people, the truth is we must forgive. And what of the Choctaw-Irish connection? We cannot blame the people standing before us for the mistakes their ancestors made. The wrong we are attempting to right in this volume is ignorance, ignorance of the truth and about the Irish potato famine and the cruelty and deaths that resulted from the Choctaws who were forced on the Trail of Tears. We forgive, for that is how we lighten the burden and allow our own lives to proceed, 
but we will never forget. And why? So it will never happen again. That is our hope, our wish, our prayer. May the tragedies of our people never happen again. Our gift, the Choctaw gift to the Irish, is a gift of love. Love and respect for you, your children, your husbands, wives, your ancestors, those buried, and those hovering about. We send you blessings and hope that the spirit of joy will shine upon you every day of your life and beyond. Well said, Tim. And on this 175th anniversary of giving between our kindred spirits, blessing to the people of Ireland and to our Choctaw people. Yakoki. The Choctaw Nation has always provided a foundation upon which a future can be built. From our home in Southeast Oklahoma to a bingo hall that grew to be one of the largest casinos in the world. Today's summer school programs lay the groundwork for a love of learning. Small business programs support local economies. And with over 10,000 jobs created, Choctaw offers financial stability to tribal members and our neighbors. Together we build success because together we're more. Thanks for listening to Native Chalk Talk. Be sure to join our community on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Simply search for Native Chalk Talk. That's Native, C-H-O-C-T-A-L-K. And check us out at nativechalktalk.com. Stay tuned for the next episode. You're going to love it. Yakoki. Thank you, my friends.